the free for all roundtable. Round two. They are on the line and ready to go. Children's music teacher Michelle Morrow, Bob Richardson, who's Talk 1010 contributor and senior counsel at National Public Relations, and Toronto lawyer Karima Saad. And Karima, let's start with you on this one. The Emergencies Act. Prime Minister Trudeau met the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act. That's what the commission says. You were there for a lot of this. Yeah, um, I can't say I'm entirely surprised with the outcome, just given the fact that the trucks on Wellington would not move, and then situations that popped up elsewhere in the province and the country. So it's not shocking to me this was the outcome. I I think that with more of a factual foundation, um, you know, that would have benefited the report. Obviously, it had to be compiled in a relatively short period of time. Um, But, you know, there's a lot to unpack. It's thousands of pages. I haven't read through all of it. And and I'm sure more analysis to come. Uh, One of the uh, criticisms about this whole thing, though, Bob Richardson, is the uh, lack of presence of Premier Doug Ford. Do you think he had a responsibility to be more involved than he was? Yeah, on this one, I think, uh, it, first of all, it's 100% accurate. The uh, government of uh, Ontario was uh, uh, AWOL during that whole thing. Uh, the OPP really did fail to show. Uh, they used weasel language when they had press releases uh, uh, describing their presence. Um, and But quite frankly, the performance of all the police was bad. Ottawa had a bad strategy, which allowed the problem uh, to uh, begin in the first place. The OPP uh, didn't show. And quite frankly, the RCMP weren't great either, which led to the uh, uh, retirement, shall we say, of the commissioner uh, uh, last week. So lots of work to do on the policing front, uh, better coordination. And, and the folks have got to show up when something like this happens in the nation's capital. Well, hopefully it doesn't happen again. But if it does, now we know how to deal with it a little bit better. So let's pivot here, Michelle Morrow, because as a children's music teacher, I wanted to run to this topic with you first. And that is Roald Dahl, my favorite author when I was a kid. And listen, maybe to this day, uh, a lot of his original works are being Change the words, something like calling Augustus Gloop and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory enormously fat is now being changed to enormous. How do you feel about these changes in text um, by the publisher here? I'm I'm torn because, like you, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I love the books growing up, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Matilda is now like an absolute favorite of mine as an mm. adult, both the both the book and the musical. Um, so on one hand, I, I like that they're taking these steps because if people were hesitant to read these books to their children because they didn't feel they had the language to explain to them why the, these words were chosen, when they were why they were written that way because they were written so long ago, hopefully this will encourage parents to read them again. And people who like the original language, I feel like they will hold on to those books. I still have some of my original ones and they will still read them. Uh, there will always be people who are upset about the change in language. But I know I've gone back and I've read some Enid Blyton books uh, that were written before the Second World War that I read growing up. And I look at the language now and I'm like, I'm not reading this to my kids. At one point, a boy says a girl is completely useless. And then that ends up being a theme throughout the whole book that just went over my head as a child. So I do think it's useful, but hopefully um, people don't nitpick on these little things and still just enjoy the stories. Well, Karima, you have been all over this story since it broke. You were tweeting about it. And, um, you know, I don't have a problem when something 
moves from one medium to another. When you go from a book to television or to a movie, that's fine. There are changes that are going to be made. But to change the original text, that's a different matter. Yeah, I have a real problem with this. Um, Honestly, I think it's in some ways worse than book burning because you are altering the original. And in my view, books are time capsules of the time mentality in which they're written. And if we try to sanitize to match modern day sensibilities, that divorces people from understanding the forces that shape history. And so I say this as someone who got invested in the Narnia series Mm. until I got to the book where C.S. Lewis obviously has a hate on for Muslims. And that was confusing as a child, but a learning experience. And I think that, you know, it's one thing to put in an intro to a book saying, you know, you might encounter this language, that language, you know, here's what the modern editor thinks, but leaving the book intact. And if that means books have a shelf life, then so be it. Uh, But I, I think that changing the original text, especially where it's not changes coming from the author himself because he's dead. I, I, I don't like where that goes. Change is coming from the author's family here, though, actually. The estate is is willing to make these changes. Bob, how do you find this? I'm a little torn on it, but I'm more in the leave it alone camp. I think constant revisionism in a number of different areas isn't great. I, I would prefer that they be teachable moments and that, uh, and that you know, uh, we show people the progress that society's made, how we are different, why we are not using that sort of language. And on a personal view, um, I am enormous at the moment, and I'm happy they're not using the word enormous. <laughs> okay. Uh, to you now, uh, Michelle. We're talking teachable moments here with those books. Well, sometimes when children's uh, when children don't learn, uh, people have spanked their kids. But now, more than half of Canadians say it's time to abolish the spanking law, which allows school teachers, parents, and any parental figure of a student or child to use physical force to discipline them. Um, I'm curious. I mean, being a teacher, I, I can't imagine, you know, you there like a whiplash scenario where you're smacking your kids if they don't learn properly. Oh my, I, oh my gosh. I didn't realize looking at the law that teachers still had this, this power, Me this neither. capability, the, the thought, like we were encouraged at one point not to hug our students, but yet we can still strike them if they make us angry enough. That boggles my mind. Um, it, it does need to be abolished, especially in the school system that should not be allowed. I do understand that for some parents you can get, there's moments when you're parenting where you get that white hot moment and you may react um, strongly, you may react the way you don't want to, but I don't believe any way that that translates to abuse. Um, but I wish the law was clear. Like I know my kids have been fighting and I have pulled them apart and one has fallen or like I've made a mark on their arm and I have felt the, like the most horrible parent in the world. And so I do realize that happens, but we need perhaps a rewriting of this law, better language. That seems to be a theme with these questions. Uh, Karima, is there a place for spanking or from the Simpsons, a paddling? Um, I think that there's a generational divide on this. Mm -hmm. And it also, it goes to whether someone themselves was spanked. And and sometimes that leads to a doubling down and kind of a rewriting of history. If I turned out fine, that means that this is a valid technique. Uh, This, like, 
studies in psychology don't really support that view. Um, so I agree. If there's a situation where it comes to needing to physically separate kids, um, you know, that's something that needs to happen in school sometimes, unfortunately. But um, spanking as discipline, I, I think, is outdated. And we know better now. What are your disciplinary thoughts, Bob Richardson? Um, I, I was just surprised that this was still on the books. Mm -hmm. I thought it had already been changed. Uh, uh, look, change it, period, full stop. It's archaic. Uh, and I'm a little older, I think, than others on the panel. So I was of the spanking generation. I think you would find that there's probably less generational divide than you think. I'm just surprised it's still on the books. Non-alcoholic brands have ramped up production amid surging demand. So, you know, we talked a lot on roundtables about that study that says you're not supposed to have more than two drinks a week, which I ignore. Um, but clearly some people don't, and they're pushing towards non-alcoholic brands. Now, this is kind of the near beers and, you know, the stuff with 0.05 alcohol. To me, Michelle Morrow, like, if I'm going to have a drink, I'm going to have a drink. I'm not going to drink some sort of beer that has no booze in it because I like the after effects when I'm drinking. If not, give me a soda. Agreed. Uh, but at the same time, it'd be nice to have some options. I know there's times in my life where I've been pregnant twice where I couldn't drink, but I wanted to go out and hang with like family, friends and stuff. And it would have been nice to have something special to drink like uh, here for something, maybe not alcoholic, but something that feels special for an occasion. If there's a market for it, absolutely. There's always going to be people who say, oh, I don't need this. Blah, blah, blah. I don't think if you're going to drink, you're going to drink that sort of thing. But <laughs> it's nice to have that option. And there's lots of times in people's life where they don't want to drink for whatever reason. And it can be really embarrassing when people are like, well, why aren't you having a drink? Why don't you have a drink? What's going on? Are you okay for a girl? Are you pregnant for a guy? Are you an alcoholic? You know what I mean? So having an option where you can bring something, it's still festive. I like the idea. And and then if you really like the flavor, throw some rum or vodka in it. <laughs> okay. Well, now you're just defeating the purpose. But Karima, <laughs> uh, what do you what do you think? Uh, I, I'm actually surprised that these things are are surging uh, at the moment. It, it doesn't compute for me. But I mean, Michelle just did an impression of how I feel. <laughs> I, I'm not a drinker. Um, so it, it doesn't really... Uh, I, I agree with the idea of having something festive. And I think that there are cool sort of temperance cocktails um, that, you know, are just special occasion drinks. Um, I can't really see the appeal in replicating the taste of alcohol uh, without the after effects because I, I don't find the taste appealing. Um, but if there's people who want that, then sure, why not? Um, and, and I think that there's also room for cannabis market mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. drink where, you know, it's it's different physiologically, um, but also has a buzz. And that's something um, that people may turn to as well. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I mean, when my gout flares, I'm all about uh, the, the, the cannabis. <laughs> so, Bob Richardson, where do you fall? I mean, if you're going to have a beer, are you going to have a beer? Or if you're not, would you go for a soda or would you go for one of these uh, for a near beer? Uh, I would go for near beer, mm. which I do uh, from time to time. Uh, I'm a drinker. I uh, I like, for instance, on a Friday night, having uh, a beer with uh, some buddies. But on a couple of occasions, I've decided not to drink uh, a drink uh, non-alcoholic beer. Uh, sometimes they're available. Sometimes they're not. The choice isn't great. Anything that expands that market, I think, is terrific. 
And I think the more choice there is, the more often uh, people like me might uh, might opt for a, a non-alcoholic drink. Well, there you go. The choice is definitely out there, and there's a lot of a lot of people who want it because production is ramping up. Uh, Kareem Asad, Bob Richardson, and Michelle Morrow, thanks very much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. There Thank you. you. Uh, that is the uh, the family day edition of More in the Morning. Appreciate you uh, being on board for it here with me, Jason Agnew. And what have we learned today? We've learned uh, if there happens to be uh, a little bit of a you know noise in your garage, uh, be careful. It might be a squirrel, and squirrels do attack just like they do or did in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I can full-on verify that, as can the scratch on my forehead, which you can see on my Instagram now. Squirrels can draw blood. Not with their teeth, just with their claws. Along with that, we've also learned that air fryers take a while to figure out how to cook with. You're going to make some mistakes along the way. That's the stage I'm currently in. And finally, one thing that we surely know is that U2 is an overrated band. And Nick has a whole bunch of tracks to play every time I fill in here. I'm going to say them all for you, Jason. More in the morning. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. It was nice working with you. Thank you, Nick. Always good to see you behind the glass. I will, of course, be back here on Sunday morning for Sunday morning trivia right across the iHeartRadio Talk Network. But John Moore will be back tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. to take care of you and keep you company. We'll talk to you then. Don't you dare miss it. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.